to set up the room to celebrate the Lord's table. And this is a picture of the room that we were in on our trip to Israel a few years back, four years ago, when uh, I went with Jimmy DeYoung, and on the table is a, an example of a lamp that would burn olive oil. Um, it's kind of a, a replica of, of what the lamps looked like back in the time of Jesus, and, and just on the left of that picture is rolled up unleavened bread. We have... I've not been able to duplicate it. How many of you think that the crackers we use are dry? Go ahead, vote. You know, Listen, it's unleavened, and it meets the picture and the standard of, of what the Scripture gives us, but it's really not the most tasty stuff in the world that we're using. You know, when you, when you uh, have that dried matzah come through on communion night, you're thanking the Lord Jesus, but you're, you're thanking Him, I hope, for the fact that His sacrifice was a whole lot uh, sweeter than what you're partaking of at the moment. Listen, I know it's dry. I just haven't found the right recipe to be able to imitate that because even though that's unleavened bread, it's not dry and hard and it doesn't make you choke if you don't get the communion juice quick enough, okay? It was really good unleavened bread. That's what the disciples did. They had the, the Last Supper and of course in in the uh, time when they were together, they had the cup as well, and Jesus said, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I come in my kingdom. So they left the upper room, and we're not exactly sure where the upper room was. Um, don't know if it was in the old city, whether it was in the city of David, Zion, or where it was, but I, I want you to know what you're looking at right now. You're looking at the southern uh, area of, of Jerusalem, just outside the Temple Mount, and you're looking east, okay? So I think if I look at the picture with you, it'll help me describe a little bit. But I want you to, to have a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about as we work through the end of John. Um, and I don't use pictures every week because the scriptures are given to us in words, but I, I do think it's helpful to kind of picture the journey. And this has been affected by history. You have to understand Jerusalem has been captured and buried and rebuilt numerous times in 2,000 years since the time of Jesus. Um, and this is the backside of what you would hear about today in the news called Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, and that is uh, an area where you can't get into today. The first time I was over there with Manfred Kober back in 1998, we were able to get into that part, take off our shoes and go in and look, but you cannot now. But this is the south side of, of the Temple Mount. And as you would go past that, um, now what you're looking at is you're looking at the Kidron Valley. And you'll remember as you look in your Bible that uh, the Bible does tell us that Jesus did that. In chapter 18, verse 1, there was a ravine of the Kidron. And so they have to leave the city and they have to go through the Kidron Valley in order to get where they're going to go. And up here, this is uh, part of the uh, Mount Olivet, okay, the Mount of Olives. Now, you're getting closer to where you're going to go. This is the Kidron Valley, and you'll see even today that there is an olive grove there. This is called the Church of All Nations, and uh, that is on the slope of the Mount of Olives. Now, this would be 
looking east. You're looking east up the Mount of Olives. And so behind you, if you were to turn around, you would see the eastern gate going on to the Temple Mount. But we're looking east and uh, there's still roads in there. There's churches. This is the Church of All Nations. This, I think, is a Russian Orthodox church. Uh, There's an olive grove over here, olive grove here. Now, I just turned you around. You're looking at the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock. And this is the uh, eastern gate that exists currently. That's more of a crusader gate. The genuine eastern gate of uh, Bible times is, is located lower. The Muslims believe that they have prevented any hope of the Messiah returning because they believe that if he had to go through this cemetery, he would be defiled. Of course, we know that since Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, he is not defiled by death. And so when he comes, he will come from the Mount of Olives and he will enter triumphantly into Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament prophets through the Eastern Gate. So you're looking west. That's the Dome of the Rock. Okay? Now you're higher up the slopes on the Mount of Olives, and you're, you're no longer seeing the Dome of the Rock, but that is the eastern uh, gate as it exists currently. So now you're on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking west. This is another view, a little bit more from the southwest. Okay, the eastern gate is up here now, or southeast, excuse me. Uh, here's the Dome of the Rock right here, and El Oscar. Aqsa Mosque is going to be over here. So we've walked, we've taken a journey that has come down through, right up through the Kidron Valley and up on the slopes until you get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is a garden on the slopes of Mount of Olives. These trees, uh, some are, they've dated them and, and a couple of them in the grove go all the way back to the time of Jesus Christ. That's how old they are, I believe this one is one of the pictures that Joanne took on our trip. And this one would be old enough to be considered from the time of Jesus, this, this olive tree right here. So it just kind of lets you know a little bit about the fact that these places are real. Uh, this, these are real locations. And the stories that we read about have a, a context and a location where they take place. This is considered, uh, this is called the stone of weeping. And you might notice this, this brass marker here. This is um, a suggested spot where Jesus was praying in the garden. Luke describes his prayers as being so intense that he prayed sweat drops of blood. And uh, this is another, another picture of the garden. So uh, now that we've gone a little bit of a tour, we've left Jerusalem, the city, and we've gone up on the Mount of Olives. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 18. We're going to take a look at the life of Peter today in the context of the trial of Jesus, and the title of the message is Peter, Me, and You. And the emphasis of the message really helps us to uh, take a look at our own life and and really to come away with this thought and that is to beware of overconfidence beware of overconfidence back in 1961 arnold palmer was 
um, was doing excellent in the Masters tournament. I know that's a long time ago. That was even before I was born. But Arnold Palmer was one of the premier golfers in American golf history for a long time. And uh, he was having an exceptional tournament in April at the Masters in Augusta, Georgia. He um, was coming to the final hole. He had a one a one shot lead over his opponent, and he he hit a great tee shot. You know what they say: you uh, you drive for show, but you putt for dough. And uh, you didn't know that, did you? Well, that's what they say. Yeah, you know, it's good if you can drive it and keep it in the short grass. That's called the fairway. Um, it's good to get it onto the green as quickly as possible. But you really make your money if you can put it in the cup. Well, Arnold Palmer hit a great shot, and as he uh, came up to his his ball off of the drive, he saw an old friend standing at the edge of the of the group of people called the gallery, and the friend motioned him over and said, come here, and, and Arnold went over to see him, and he, he shook his hand, his friend shook his hand, and he said, congratulations. He says, I shook his hand, but as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. He said, on, on my next two shots, I hit a ball into the sand trap, and then I put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt, and I lost the Masters. He said, you don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it and become determined that you'll never do it again. And he says, I haven't in all these years since then. One of the, one of the issues that can confront any kind of an athlete is overconfidence. One of the issues that can confront a Christian is overconfidence as well. We come into the story today and we're going to look at a contrast between how Jesus goes through his trials and how Peter ends up having his denials. And John puts them side by side in the story. And one of the things that we see is that Jesus is confident and goes through the trials that he must with confidence because he has spent time with the Father and he is living out the Word and he has spent time in prayer. And in contrast to Peter, he goes into the situation overconfident, trusting in himself and ends up falling and failing in a desperate way. One of the things I want to tell you today as we study the life of Peter is this. Our study is not to bash Peter. And maybe even I, in, in a, in a, on occasion in the past, have been <clears throat> strong in my analysis of Peter. And, and maybe I've come across harsh, but I want you to know I stand here today uh, more humble than I've ever been. Peter confessed Jesus. He loved Jesus. He defended Jesus, wrongly or not, and he followed Jesus. Peter was a pillar of the church. Peter's name is on one of the gates in the New Jerusalem. You ever thought about that? Jesus told his disciples. We, we find in Revelation chapter 21 that the names of the disciples won on each of the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem. Let me tell you something. Peter is an honored man for all eternity. Peter's a hero of the faith. He's real, he's reactionary, and he becomes rock solid John was close to him. John and Peter worked together in the fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee. They were business partners. So as we read about Peter today, we must not 
see John presenting Peter in a really bad light or in a harsh way, like he's bashing his friend. He's not. They were saved together. Peter gets uh, a lot of credit for some momentous things in the lives of the disciples. And in John chapter 6, John records for us Peter's statement. Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You are the one that has the words of eternal life. Peter was a saved man. John and Peter served together and they they grew together and they ran to the tomb together. John beat him. They preached together in Acts and they healed together and they finished well together, but they died separately. Peter died two decades before John. And interestingly, both of those men went to the empty tomb and it is Peter who is the one who opens up the church with his first message and it is John who closes the New Testament canon with the last message from Jesus. Those two men were together theologically and scripturally all the way to the end. So as we read today about the trial of Jesus and the failures of Peter, we must not allow ourselves to read into the passage that John has harsh words for Peter, that John is condemning Peter. John is recording the failures of a dear friend and a colleague as he is led by the Spirit. And so I want to be careful today too as I handle the text that uh, we need to be careful. I want to be careful in the way I present Peter uh, because I love Peter and I respect him, and I am learning that I hope, in spite of my own imperfections and inadequacies and failures as a man, that I hope I finish well, and I encourage all of you to do the same as Peter does for us. He does end well, but part of the journey in living out the Christian life includes failures. What happens when we try to live the Christian life in our own strength? Peter, I'm just like you. I fail and I fall when I miss the warning sign of prayerlessness. I want to be careful that we don't import too much information into the context of John 18, but I do think it's really important that as we look at the story of Peter today, we do realize that there was one thing that was true about his life and the disciples' life, and if you go back to Luke chapter 22, you'll see it. when am I more likely to fail? When am I more likely to fail to resist temptation and to fall into sin? When am I more likely to blow it? Well, I'm more likely to blow it when I have a life of protracted prayerlessness. Verse 39 of Luke 22. He came out Luke is writing about Jesus. He came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Notice, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and 
being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, this is probably the next part that is most convicting. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. If you go back to John chapter 18, one of the one of the warning signs that indicates a life of overconfidence in my own ability rather than dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ is prayerlessness. And I can have a false sense of confidence, my own abilities, my own abilities to handle the situation. And as the soldiers and the captain of the guard, the officers of the chief priests come into the garden to arrest Jesus, Jesus is very confident in the spirit of the Lord, and he goes forth and he says, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am he. Peter, on the other hand, sees this as an opportunity where he must come and defend the Lord Jesus Christ, and he he whips out this little personal dagger. I don't know if you realize it, but it's one guy with a little dagger about 18 inches long taking on 600 people. I'd say that's a bit of an of a inward-focused overconfidence, wouldn't you? Now, I do know about a guy's name was Samson. He took on 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Totally different guy. Totally different scenario. Total, totally different in every way because the Spirit of the Lord came on Samson. We're not reading about the Spirit of the Lord coming on Peter. In other words, what the text is giving to us is he's given to us a man who is operating in his own wisdom and in his own strength, and he's not thinking clearly. He thinks he's coming to the defense of the Lord Jesus Christ because... Jesus has just made everybody fall over with his declaration of deity. Jesus says, I am, and everybody shrinks back and falls down on the ground, John writes. Peter says, oh, this is our, this is our movement. This is our opportunity. We must press the advantage. We've got the power of heaven. He grabs a sword and he swings it and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. Peter is operating in overconfidence. Because Jesus, not too many minutes previously, maybe an hour earlier, had said, pray that you do not fall into temptation. Sometimes it doesn't take an hour for us to fail, does it? You ever notice that? It was an hour. Can you not, Jesus says, could, could you not spend one hour with me in prayer? Do you find it difficult to pray for an hour straight? I do. Does your mind wander? Mine does. Do your knees get tired? Yeah. Do you get on your knees? Yeah, sometimes I don't either. A prayerlessness in this passage and in the context is an indication of overconfidence. And when we're prayer, when we don't have time of prayer, when we're not engaged in the battle of prayer, it leads to a weakened ability to resist temptation And then it leads to human wisdom and fleshly responses. Peter is swinging the sword and he is not acting in the spirit. He's acting in the flesh. He is handling things in in an overconfident way based in faulty human reasoning. One of the reasons we can say that is because Jesus has already taught his disciples numerous times that he was going to be arrested. He was going to be betrayed into the hands of 
the religious leaders. Peter knew that. John knew that. They had heard it, but perhaps it didn't really sink in. And like I said, I'm not going to press the advantage and, and bash Peter because how often do I study the Word of God and give it cursory attention and it doesn't really sink in? Well, maybe this will sink in this morning. Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians and he says this, These things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. God is able. God is faithful. Will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. You know that phrase, uh, God will never give you more than you're able to handle is a lie, don't you? That's really a misapplication of this verse. Everything that comes into our life is beyond our ability to handle. God is faithful. God is the one that helps you to resist temptation and to do the right thing. God is the one who gives you the strength and the grace and the mercy to go through illness and financial distress. It is God. God is the one who is faithful. The warning in the passage is this. Let every person who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So this morning, I want you to understand that prayerlessness is an indication of overconfidence. When I live life overconfidently, I'm living it in my own strength and my own ability, and that is when I will fall and I will fail. Secondly, I will fail and I will fall if I ignore the instructions and the warnings of God's Word about life. Would you join me, please, in chapter 18? Let's look at the contrast between Jesus and Peter in the story. Verse 12, it says, The Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus. There's a series of three verbs that carry the story. They arrest Jesus. Verse 13, they led him to Annas. I'm sorry, verse 12, they arrested Jesus. Secondly, they bound him. And they led him to Annas first. Now, I, I mentioned this in the, in the context, and maybe we'll look at this in a different way at another time, about the, how illegal this was and how Jesus was so wrongly mistreated. But note the theological ironies that are taking place. Here's the omnipotent Son of God who just moments before had caused everybody to fall on their faces on the ground. And now he's allowed them to tie him up and bind him and lead him to Annas, the high priest. Do you sense that? How ironic that is? It just doesn't seem together the omnipotent Son of God allowing himself to be tied up, bound, and, and arrested and led to Annas. But here we see the Son of God fulfilling the Word of God, what the Word of God says about him and what the Word of God will, will uh, come to pass. Jesus himself said this would happen. He is seeing his own prophecies fulfilled. The Word of God always comes true. It will never not happen the way Jesus said it. There is no exception clause 
to the truthfulness and the accuracy of God's word. We'll never be able to come to the scriptures and say, this is always true except in my life and in my situation. It's just always true. It's just always going to happen the way it says. Jesus says that there's going to be consequences to our decisions, good or bad. It's always going to be that way. If you live in the in the power of the Spirit, these things will happen. If you live in the power of the flesh, these things will happen. It just always, always, always happens that way. And as we see the arrest of Jesus and as he's bound and led away, we're being reminded about the accuracy of God's word. But let's go on because it says that he went to, uh, to Annas, who was the older high priest, and then also Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. You say, how do you have two high priests? Well, sometimes the Roman government would replace a high priest if they felt that the high priest wasn't as friendly to them as he should be. So Caiaphas does what he can to uh, help maintain power in the family. Annas is the high priest, and Caiaphas is also the high priest that year, father-in-law and son-in-law. It says in verse 14 that Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for the one man to die on behalf of the people. This is uh, in fulfillment, really, of a prophecy that was made by this guy, even though he wasn't a believer. But I want you to notice how the the instructions of God's word come about in Peter's life. Verse 15, it says, Simon Peter, and this is interesting to me because John uses the combination of his old name and his new name. Perhaps it's an indication that it shows uh, an area of Peter's life where there's going to need to be some growth because Simon refers to the self-made man. And Peter refers to the one who is the stone. Peter is the name that goes with the man that is being changed and made new by Jesus Christ. Simon is the name, the given name, that referred to the normal and the natural man. Peter puts them together here, and I think he does it for a reason, is to talk about the fact that there are times when every believer is going to have a struggle in their life as to whether they're going to walk by faith or walk in the flesh. They're going to walk in obedience to the word of God or they're going to walk in their own confidence or in their own wisdom. Simon Peter, not Peter, Simon Peter was following and so was another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The, the other unnamed disciple, I believe, is John. Can't prove it. But you can't not prove it either. So if you want to believe it's somebody else, you go ahead. I, I think it's John. He seems to have a, a good eyewitness account of what's going on here. But notice what happens. They, they bring in Peter, and in verse 17, the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of his disciples are you and he says no i'm not she asks a question this is one one slave girl she asks the question and the question expects a no answer the way she phrases the question expects a no answer and he gives it to her 
That's his first denial. But here's the point of the passage right now that I want us to see. Christ has warned Peter that this would happen, and Peter really didn't believe him. That's why I've written it the way I have. When I fail to believe the instructions and the warnings of God's word, that sets me up for failure later. When I don't take God at face value, in chapter 13, after the the meal, Jesus has revered, uh, excuse me, Jesus has revealed that it's going to be Judas who will betray him. But I want you to notice the, the condition of Peter's heart hours before the arrest. Verse 36, Peter says, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Notice verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. That's confidence. That's loyalty. That's love. That's that's the expression of what he thought was really going on in his heart at the moment. But look what Jesus said. This is undeniable truth of God's word in verse 39. He says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. In fact, Jesus says, I'm going to lay my life down for you. When you look at Peter standing there, just inside the the gathering, and you see that that slave girl come up to him, and, and you picture that as you're reading, and you listen to that exchange... Do you cringe as you get ready to read his response when you know it's coming? Do you, do you wish you could DVR this and maybe you could go back in and edit it so that you could change his answer? You're not one of his disciples too, are you? Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. No, I'm not. Oh, you said it. But we're just like him. We're just like him. There are times we get under pressure. You'll be under pressure at work and a guy comes along and you know, we have the opportunity to stand for Jesus and, and we don't do it. Now, I got to tell you, what I'm about to tell you now doesn't happen around here at Calvary because of who I work with, but it used to happen when I was at UPS. You know, somebody would come along and you get ready to start the day and things were getting ready to get busy and, and somebody would tar- start telling you a joke. And it, it could be... Uh, really not a good joke and the reason why i say that it doesn't happen around here is because pastor matt doesn't tell me dirty jokes okay and you can be glad about that and i don't say that to him either but you might be in that an environment and and somebody begins to to say that and you're going to have the opportunity to to stand with the lord and say no i don't want to hear it or you're going to deny your association with the lord and say go ahead and and laugh at it it's that type of a situation are are you a follower of jesus at ups they used to say are you one of the brothers one of the baptist bible brothers you're a brother boy it was just the mocking tone just drip with sarcasm 
then they, they would just watch you so intently. It's interesting, you know, how uh, times change and maybe how we don't take our, our loyalty to Jesus Christ as seriously we used to. I told you recently I was doing some reading in our church history and looking back at old business meeting notes. And, and sometimes people get upset when we work on membership issues around here because maybe people haven't been a while here for a while and we say, well, maybe we ought to be a little bit merciful. And I'm, I look back and I'm reading this other story years ago where our church was going to practice church discipline because one of their members was heard cursing on the job, swearing. And our church was going to take action because there was no repentance and they had brought harm to the testimony of Jesus Christ and shame to the name of Jesus. I'm like, wow. There's some serious understanding of what it means to deny Jesus. Now, all I'm saying here is this. The scriptures are full of warnings and and one of the examples that we have is Peter coming through this story and Jesus says to him, Peter, you're not as strong as you think you are. You're not as advanced in your walk with me and your faith with me as you think you are. Peter says, Lord, I'll follow you. We could go to other chapters and we could compare his testimony and his story. And he said, Lord, everybody else is going to run away. I won't. I'm willing to die for you. And, and Jesus says, Peter, before this night is over, before we get into the next day, before that rooster can crow twice, you will have denied me three times. And Peter did not believe Jesus. And you know, we're all guilty of not believing Jesus. Some of you have been coming to Calvary or going to churches like Calvary your entire life and you've had men that have been far more polished and astute and theological and academic and interesting than me tell you about the truths of God's word and what happens when you do this and what happens if you do that. Here's what God says to believe. Here's what God says to do. Sometimes they scream. Sometimes they talk gently. Sometimes it's a monotone, and sometimes it's true, really exciting and really engaging. But nevertheless, all of us, at some time or another, have not been willing to hear what the Lord Jesus has to say. And it sets us up to fall, and it sets us up to fail. And that's what happens to Peter. There is a prayerlessness that comes into this story, and there is an unwillingness or or maybe the inability because of that overconfidence where he doesn't put two and two together he doesn't take the instruction of jesus and the warnings of jesus and the love of jesus and put it all together and say man i've got to be on my guard i've got to watch out Shelby Foote is a Civil War historian, does a lot of writing from a Southern perspective. He recounts a story of a soldier who was wounded at the Battle of Shiloh during the Civil War, and he was ordered to go to the rear. The fighting was fierce, and within minutes he returned to his commanding officer and he said, Captain, give me a gun. This fight ain't got any rear. 
Listen, I share that story with you to help you to understand that the fight in the walk of the Christian life is all around you. And you can never lay down your armament of Christ. You can never lay down your weapons. You can never say, I'm just going to take a break from the battle and I'm going to go to the rear and I'm going to rest and I'm going to lay back and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not in harm's way back here. Nothing can get me. You can't do that. The fight to walk the Christian life is all around you. It is everywhere. There's not a moment in time in your day where you can let your guard down. There's not a moment in life where you can let your guard down. You can't say, well, when I finish up high school and I go to college, I'm going to take a little detour. And I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy this kind of stuff. I'm going to be involved in this kind of worldly behavior. I'm going to see how the other half lives. And I'll pull it together. I'll pull it together when I get later in my 20s. Once I get married and have kids, I'll straighten up because I know it's serious then. And in the meantime, we have what's called the lost decade. Why? Because people don't believe Jesus. They've squandered away 10 years of their life. They have all kinds of spiritual scar tissue and, and wounds. And sometimes baggage that they'll never be able to overcome. It will, they'll always carry it with them because they approached life with a significant overconfidence. And it was an overconfidence in themselves because they failed to grab a hold of the instruction and the warnings of God's word. Just hours before this, that's why I want you to understand, we're, we're in the garden, the arrest has happened. We're at Anna's place. It was just hours before that. Jesus looked right at those guys and Peter and he said, you need to pray so that you do not fall into temptation. And I would say that you and I need to understand that we need to pray and not ignore the warning of God's word because when we do, we will fail and we will fall. Can I give you one instance? Proverbs 4.24 says to watch over your heart with all diligence. Four twenty three, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from your from you a deceitful mouth and put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. That is the principle found in, in Proverbs about guarding your heart and not, not willingly ignoring God's word and, and being careful to, to not fail to take God seriously. I'm gonna, I know I'm over. I can't exhort you enough. I can't tell you all of the things that have happened this week. I can't tell you all of the things that are going on even in my extended family. I can't tell you about all the things that I know about some of our kids that have come through our church in the last five to six years and how they've lived morally and how they've struggled. I can't tell you all of the things that I know 
But I do want you to understand that there is a grave danger in living life with an overconfidence in your own abilities. Because when you do, you will more than likely deny Jesus Christ. You will fall and you will fail. You can dress up and come on Sunday. Families do it every week. Look good, spend time in front of the mirror, bring their Bible, walk in, be polite, kind. They leave here and they go out and they live in the real world and life is a disaster. An absolute disaster. Families live in such a way that they're dominated by fear. I hope nobody discovers this about us. I have to tell you, one of the great things that comes out of the story of Peter is that there is hope. And even though we leave this story in the middle because of time, I want you to understand that Peter's fall and Peter's failure does not mean that he's forsaken. And there is grace There is the grace of God. Grace alone is the only thing that can help pick somebody up and help them go in the right direction again. That is our hope. And that is why I appeal to you and I say, is your life marked by a prayerlessness? That's an indication that you are living in your own confidence. Is your life marked by a willful choice to ignore God's word that sets you up for danger and failure, because God's word always gets it right. Jesus will never lie to us when he talks about the negative consequences and when he talks about the positive. Wherever you are today, I'm going to encourage you to run hard after Jesus. I'm going to ask you to pray that God will transform your heart and your mind so that you agree with him. And, and if there are areas of compromise, if there are areas where you're, you're flirting with disaster, that you'll run hard away from that and you'll run hard to Jesus and say, Lord, transform my mind and transform my life. Let's pray. Lord, I come into this story and, I, and then I come out of it and I, I don't, I can't make myself believe that Peter ever intended to fail you and indeed there are probably a lot of us in here today that would say that they don't intend to fail you but our response needs to be one of running to you and and being intentional about honoring you and being faithful to you and and about bearing fruit for your name and so, Lord, if we're, our lives are marked by uh, a lack of prayer and if our lives are marked by an unwillingness to study and apply the Word of God, then I pray that you'll change us before the consequences become overwhelming and that you would meet with us here and draw us back to the beauty of the cross. Because in the middle of the story is your Son who stands, who endures, who suffers, who obeys, who brings hope because he conquers 
sin and death and the grave. And so we run to the cross and we plead and ask you for your help. And we do that in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Just stand with me.